Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garden around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, Pastor Ben shared a few weeks ago um, about the, the series that we are into now. We're calling it Eating with Jesus. And it's part of, uh, it's kind of the beginning of a year-long theme that we're going to be doing here at Calvary called Eating and Doing. And one of the, one of the parts of this is that we're, in, we're getting ready to move toward uh, encouraging Calvary to be, be having meals uh, with with people outside of those you usually are sharing meals with. If you're at the annual meeting afterwards, I'll be, I'll be sharing a little bit more about that. But right now, we're in this place where for the rest of this month, our encouragement is just that you get into the habit of sharing meals together as a family. And for some of you, that's what you do all the time already. The family sits down around the table, the phones go away, and that's how you have dinner. For some of you, if you're like me, when you eat dinner, usually you are not sitting at a table. You are in front of a screen with a moving, loud picture on it, and some of the time you're looking at your phone. And that's actually just an absolutely terrible habit to be into. I am one who is absolutely in that habit. Lisa and I are making an effort to, when, we are, when we're able to have dinner together, to do that differently. And we do find that that is a much richer experience. I always tell her I'm, I'm not able to adult after 8 o'clock, so if she needs anything from me, right, the eating together at the table means there's usually that time afterwards where we can talk about serious things or do serious things. But if I'm on a couch watching a TV, I'm usually done for the night. Maybe you can relate. I hope that you're doing that, and I'm hoping that that is becoming a, a rich experience for you. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't started yet, to make a, make a habit of sitting down at the table together, put the phones away, and just enjoy time together. What we're doing today is we're, we're talking about a story about shame, about redemption and restoration, and about how a meal can restore a wounded relationship. 
And that leads us to our single-sentence sermon summary today, which is this, that every meal is an opportunity to renew our relationship with God and to celebrate his faithful goodness. For the note-takers, I'll say that again. Every meal is an opportunity to renew our relationship with God and to celebrate his faithful goodness. But this story in John 21, when you listen to it for the first time, you don't hear shame in it, but I assure you it's there. We're going to be talking about that soon. But shame just has this corrosive effect on relationships. Shame is is when you feel that you are less or, or bad or something is deeply wrong with you because of something that's happened or something that you've done. It's different than guilt. Guilt is when you've done a thing you know you shouldn't have done because God has called you to be his child, and that's not the way a child of God is supposed to behave. Shame is, is, is when that turns otherwise, when, when you start to see yourself differently because of what you've done. How could I be a child of God when I've done this or when I struggle with this? And it happens in other relationships too, not just between us and God. Shame happens when you offend or you do wrong to someone and you can just see that the relationship is in danger or different or under threat and you panic and you react one way or another because how could you have done what you just did? And that can be a very painful thing. I remember uh, having er, an event early on in my time here at Calvary. I was a youth pastor, and there was a young young man who went through something kind of profound um, regarding a young woman, a difficult circumstance, and he shared with me. And as many things that are shared with me are, it was intended to be confidential. And I was still young, and I was still learning. And so in in my message that week, Just without thinking, it kind of came out of me as an example. And I shared the confidential thing. And I didn't think about it until afterwards when a few of his friends came up to me. He wasn't there that day and said, did did he give you permission to share? And it was that moment. You know that moment when you didn't realize you'd done anything wrong and then it just, it hits. And that feeling comes on. And it's shame. And you've got a couple of options then. right? The healthy option is you need to get in touch with this person. You need to apologize. You need to own it. And you need to restore relationship. The much easier thing is to think, well, maybe maybe he'll never find out. Maybe I can just let this sit. Maybe this will just go away. And then I was thinking about when he was coming back into town soon and how it was going to affect my desire or ability to see him and be with him and to pastor him. And so it was just this need, I need to just do it now. So a phone call, some humble pie, an apology, and as is often the case, it was met with grace. But if you let that shame sit, it affects relationships. Now this story in John 21 is a story about a meal. And that meal is an opportunity to heal a wounded relationship. An offense is given and shame is felt. A relationship is wounded. A meal is an opportunity to heal a wounded relationship. And that is true whether it's our relationship with God 
or a relationship between two people. So I want to set the stage a little bit. Before this story, you all remember the story, right, with Peter. As Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, and Peter is kind of following along, there's these three events where he denies that he knows Jesus. And this is a powerful reason for him to be feeling ashamed. His denials are recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of those stories that's there in each and every one. Three times he's asked if he knows Jesus, and three times he denies it. He even calls down curses. And when you read it, it doesn't say who he calls down curses on, but there is only one person that makes sense. Are you sure you're not one of his disciples? No. No, I'm not. I'll, I'll even call down curses on Jesus to prove it. Could you imagine being Peter, having just cursed Jesus, and then he hears the sound, and he looks over, and Jesus is looking right at him because he knew. Could you imagine the shame in that moment? That's what Peter is feeling. Now, we'll, we'll get more into this a little bit later, but for now, let's just say that, that Peter denied Jesus, and while he'd seen the resurrected Jesus. They'd had no time together. They'd had no conversations one-on-one. -on -one. There's just no indication that this offense had been dealt with. Because shame can't just sit. It needs to be dealt with. In other words, since Peter denied Jesus and Jesus turned to look at him, this had not been taken care of. And so I think that you can imagine, you can put yourself in his shoes and imagine how Peter is feeling in this story. And so this comes out, too, because John 21 begins with this strange thing. The apostles are fishing. And it, it might be good for us to wonder why, because it's not the same thing that we might think of today when a group of men without anything to do that day might go out fishing for leisure. That's not what's happening here, because fishing was Peter's profession before Jesus called him to do something different. But Peter had messed up. He denied Jesus. He was afraid and ashamed. And it took time. But this is Peter deciding to go back to fishing. He'd failed at being an apostle. He'd failed at being a rabbi. He'd failed at being a fisher of men. And so he was going to go back to fishing. This is, this is a person accepting failure. Now, the other apostles are there, too, and I think they all have their reasons, but this, I think, is Peter's reason. He's ashamed. There's no way that he could be an apostle. There's no way he could be a fisher of men. So the story says that early in the morning, the apostles hear someone calling to them from the beach, but they don't know who it is. And he, he just says to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish now, I cannot imagine how frustrating that must be. You know, you know what it's like to have someone in your back seat that knows how to drive better than you do, and they're willing to tell you all about it as you're driving in real time? Most of you have never dealt with anything like that, I'm sure, but some of you are nodding and glancing at someone in the church, and we don't want to get anyone in trouble, so we'll move right along. But, but most of us know what it's like to have a backseat driver, and this, I imagine, is what that felt like. 
Because he says, haven't you caught any fish? And they say no. And then, then he says, well, just throw your net on the right side of the boat. And the absurdity of that must have just been over the top. They've been throwing their net all night. It's not as though this is a thing you set and leave in place all night when it's not catching any fish. You pull out the net, you throw it again. You pull up the net, you throw it again. It had been on the right side of the boat and there were no fish. I think they did it just to get the person on shore to be quiet. And then what happens? They find so many fish that they can't haul in the net. It threatens to break. The Bible actually gives this really specific number. It says there's 153. I think we have that number for a reason. I'm going to go into that in a little bit. But that number seems to be important. Otherwise, it wouldn't be specific. It would just say a lot. So in the boat, John, he realizes what this means. And he says to Peter, that's Jesus. And we see the best part of Peter's heart. Because as soon as he realizes that's his Lord, he takes his garment, he puts it around himself, and he jumps in the water. Now, it strikes me that that's a little different than today, right? If you're going to jump off of a boat into water, you don't usually put more on, right? Usually it's the other, other way, but this is a time, if you can believe it, before smartphones, right? There was nothing electronic in his, in his robes that he needed to worry about. He didn't have a wallet. He couldn't get wet. And in fact, if you live in a time when you're constantly caked with dust, Getting your clothes wet is not usually a bad thing. So he puts on his outer garment and he dives into the water. He can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. The other apostles do bring it. And then this really interesting thing happens. I want to read verses 9 through 13. If we can put them back up there, that'd be great. Verses 9 through 13. Otherwise, you can just follow along. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with fish. There's this detail in verse 9 that just always really surprises me. If you're someone who underlines or someone who circles, I'd encourage you to, to draw an arrow or make a line or a highlight or something. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. It seems like an innocuous verse, but I think it's really important because Jesus has them bring their catch but he's already cooking fish and warming bread. Now, I think there's a lesson here for us. I think this story is teaching us something here. I think it's this, that every single meal we eat is offered to us by God. They've just caught 153 fish. They didn't catch it on their own. That's a miraculous catch of fish. There's no way it's not a miracle. But but those aren't even the fish that he serves them. They get to shore, and this is a fish or bread that Jesus has created to be part of the meal. There is no way 
that they could see this as anything other than the provision of God. And the same is true for you and I. Every meal is offered to us by God. Every single one. Whether we're in a good place with him or a bad one. Whether we are on fire in our faith or our faith has grown stale. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He holds it together moment by moment. There's a verse that I love. You hear me say it sometimes in prayers because it just stands out to me. It's James 1.17. And it says this, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every good thing that we have is from him. And that means every meal we eat, every single one, comes from him. And if you stop and think about it, that's why we pray before meals. We pray because we're thanking him for the food. But every meal is an opportunity to heal a wounded relationship. And every meal is offered to us by God. I want you to hold those two ideas because we're going to tie them together with something in a moment. Every meal is offered to us by God and every meal is an opportunity to heal a wounded relationship. So can you imagine here being Peter in this story? I think that, that when we're ashamed, something within us becomes allergic to mercy. Do you know that feeling? It's that feeling of not wanting to call the young man and just hoping that the issue goes away. When we have the opportunity to confront the person we've wronged, we have a few different emotions. Sometimes we run away. Have you ever run away when you were ashamed? Sometimes we justify. And sometimes we just want to yell and holler. Or we want them to yell and holler at us because we'll feel better if they'll just get angry with us. The thing that's hardest is mercy. Instead, Jesus just sits there as Peter comes up on the beach, offering Peter food with this subtle reminder that no matter what Peter does, no matter what profession he takes up, whether he stays and acts as an apostle and a rabbi and a fisher of men, or if he goes back to his father's profession, he'll never escape the provision and the attentive love of God. You see, shame doesn't work as a reason to run from God because you literally can't escape him. He's holding you together moment by moment. And every relationship, every blessing, every gift in your life is from him. You, we can turn away in our hearts from God, but we can never run away with any success because he is always there. His love is unending. His provision is unending. It's always before us. If that's you right now, if you're dealing with something, a sin that you're struggling with, and you just can't overcome it, and shame has led you to turn away and feel like there's no way that God could love you or want you or see you as one of his children, let me assure you, it's just not the case. Nothing you could have ever done could be as bad as calling down curses on Jesus as he's getting crucified. That's where Peter's at. 
and he gets to the beach and Jesus isn't hollering. I bet Peter would almost wish he would. Instead, it's mercy. And I think that's hard because we don't want to let ourselves be given something that we don't feel like we deserve. Have you ever had that struggle? Someone gives you something you don't deserve and it's hard. Or you have to ask for help and accept it from someone. When there's shame, we're allergic to mercy. But that's what Jesus offers. I mean, think of the scene. The last time Peter is sitting around a fire, what's he doing? He's calling down curses on Jesus, and here's Jesus at a fire. I don't think he could miss it. He feels ashamed. He doesn't deserve to be an apostle. And Jesus reminds him in a not-so-subtle way that God's just as involved in fishing as he is in fishing for men. It's almost like Jesus is saying, Peter, it's not that you can't escape. It's that you shouldn't want to. Because there was someone else that had a reason for shame and did find, in a, way to, did find a way to escape. There was Judas. See, Judas betrays Jesus as well. He gives Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver. You know that story. And what happens in response or what happens afterwards? He takes his life. The shame's too much. He can't deal with it. He takes his life. He escapes through any means that he can. Hear me. Please hear me. Nothing that you've ever done warrants harming yourself. Nothing that you've ever done is beyond forgiveness. Nothing that you've ever done is a reason to turn away or run away from God. Because we tend to think that God sits on a swivel chair, right? That, that he looks at us and he smiles and he's pleased with us as long as we behave, as long as we do all the things we're supposed to do, as long as we're going to church and doing devotions and being good Christians. But when we struggle or fail or sin, we feel like he turns away in anger or disgust. Please hear me. That's not who God is and that's not what God does. Judas is so allergic to mercy, so ruled by shame, he takes his life. But Peter shows the incredible thing about his heart here. When he sees Jesus after his betrayal, he puts on a robe and he jumps into the water and he swims to him. He can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. He's got to get to Jesus now. If you're having a hard time because of shame in your relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to be Peter. Don't wait another moment. Don't avoid times of prayer. Don't avoid being involved in church or taking a, a volunteer role or any of it because of shame. Shame doesn't have a place in the Christian heart. It doesn't sit well because our God is a God of grace, a God who forgives. And we're going to see that come out here in a second. And so you need to decide. Are we going to be Judas or are we going to be Peter? Because we can't get away from the provision of God because he provides for us even when we're ashamed. Now, I, I said that a meal 
can heal a wounded relationship. And we're about to see how this kind of closes with Peter. But it's true also for people that a meal can heal a wounded relationship. Hospitality is a tremendous way to bring healing to a rift. You know that person, that person in your life, that person that's a believer, that that may be part of the church family, maybe part of the 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 your connections outside of church, but but you know that person, right? That that there's a rift with. And and it, it might be that you and they see things differently. You think they've done wrong, they think you've done wrong, but there's there's that rift. What if? What if you used hospitality as a way to bring restoration to that relationship? You know, when we get to that phase where it's time to invite people over, what if you stepped out in courage and you use that invitation as a time and an opportunity to bring healing between you and someone else? What if it was the first person you invited? What if you jumped in with courage? What do you think God could do in the midst of that? How do you think your heart might change when you sit across a table from them and shared a meal? I'm willing to bet for many of us, for many of us, we can understand, we can see that God could use that to bring healing to a relationship that desperately needs it. Now, there's a, there's a danger here, right, as I encourage everyone to first invite that person that they, are, they have a hard time with. Please don't assume that whatever invitation you get to dinner first means you, this person can't stand you. I don't think that's a good way to, uh, to go into to, to that occasion or that opportunity. But what if you saw this as an opportunity to bring healing between you and another? I want to encourage you to do that. There's one more thing I want to draw attention to here is that when we talk about how every meal is provided for us by God and every meal is an opportunity to heal a wounded relationship, there's something we all do together every week that's very, very much like a meal. In fact, often in service we have communion. We don't do it here every week, but we do it several times a year. And that is the meal that Jesus has given us. And it may not feel like a meal, right? It's, it's, a, it's a cracker and some juice. But it is absolutely a reminder, uh, a calling back to that time when Jesus sat around the table with his apostles. It's a meal that we share with him and one another. But, but church service is that already. You think about when you invite someone to a meal. You welcome them in, right? That's how we begin service. And there's a time of fellowship, of togetherness. That's definitely a part of service at Calvary. And we share something of substance together. God provides his word for us every week to consume, to chew on, to be changed by. Church service every week provides an opportunity. If you are down, if, if God is far away, if it feels like there's a rift between you and he, this is your chance. Every week, come here and, and turn it over to him and see how he can heal that wounded relationship. Don't hold back. Don't feel like he's far away. Don't wait for some other sign that he still loves you or wants you. Every single week, that's the sign. 
the fellowship that's offered here. So what happens after this? Jesus reinstates Peter. You know that story, don't you? They kind of go off on their own after, after the meal, and, and Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Now there's some things going on deeper there with the language that I think is important, but, but, but I think it matters that three times, three times, Peter denies Jesus, and three times Jesus asks, do you love me? And I think Peter must have realized in that moment there's just no way to get away from Jesus, and he doesn't ever want to. He's denied Jesus three times, and he, gets a, a, he casts a net and gets so many fish, 153, more than, than he could haul in or any of them could haul in on their own. An unbelievable amount of fish. A provision from God that's overwhelming, that's too much, that's amazing and over the top because that's how God provides. Peter can't get away from Jesus. And then it says the third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter's hurt. Because he realizes what's happening. He's being reinstated. The mercy's happening now. Now, that's hard. To stand in the midst of prayer before God and to know whatever offense you've committed, whatever wrong you've done, what you're receiving is mercy. But Peter, the incredible thing is he doesn't run from it in this story. It's what separates him from Judas. He goes right for it. And I want to encourage you to do the same, to run toward the mercy of God, to not allow shame to ever keep you away. Because just as Jesus reinstates Peter, he's waiting every time we turn away, every time we walk away, every time we allow a distance between he and us, he's waiting to reinstate us. And so if that's you, if there's something going on, there's some, some division, some sin, something, it's time to turn it over. It's time to repent. It's time to ask for forgiveness and to realize that any distance between you and God is not because he's left. It's not because he's turned away. He's waiting for you with a fire and a meal. And he's ready to reinstate you. Forgiveness, mercy, they're available. You just have to be Peter and run toward it. My encouragement to you today is to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. You are amazing, Lord. Your goodness, it's overwhelming. You provide for us, Lord, but you don't, you don't just provide enough. You provide every single good thing. And even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, Lord, we know that we're not outside of your provision. We're not outside of your care. Because, Lord, you have made a way for us to become yours, sons and daughters belonging to you. Lord, and we know that if we, 
turn away from our sin, if we commit and repent and accept you as Lord and Savior, that there's never a reason for us to feel like you're far away because you're always there. Your love is absolute. It's unyielding. It's unrelenting, Lord. And we praise you for that. And we ask today for anyone that's here that's struggling, that feels like they're down in their faith and need to come back, we, we pray that you would give them a strong, powerful, overwhelming sense of your love for them and that they would come running back to you. And for those of us that aren't there, we pray that the next time we're tempted to let shame between us and you, that we would be Peter and that we would run to you. We pray all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.